The history of science and medicine you were taught in school doesn't tell the whole story. Our legacy is full of unsung heroes who made incredible contributions that just haven't been recognized. And there are too many suppressed stories of exploitation under the guise of scientific research. As biomedical scientists and seekers of justice, we want to uncover the hidden side of science and make these stories known. People of all races, genders, nationalities, sexualities, and abilities have always been essential to pushing the field forward. It's time for us all to reclaim the bench. Welcome to Reclaim the Bench. I'm Jamal. And I'm Megan. And what are we talking about today, Megan? Well, we are talking about the Freedom House Paramedics, which was recommended to us by Alex Glather. A friend of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. One of our friends that we shouted out last time. Yeah. Do we have any other housekeeping things that we should talk about? Hmm. I don't know. I think what we discussed that after the next episode. All right. We're going to take a six-week break to revamp the podcast and revamp the material that we'll be recording and how we're going to best give you guys a good experience. Yeah, so we'll be wrapping up season one after the next episode. Pretty exciting. Yeah. And then we'll be coming back in beginning of February with hopefully new ideas, a more streamlined system. And this is the first time that we're recording in that studio that we told you guys about in the Jacobs School recording studio at our university. So it took, uh, we're kind of boxed in here with a lot of sound absorbers and some random skulls. Yeah, Uh, we're under a tent right now. Yeah. (laughs) I think this is a fake skull. (laughs) You sure? No. But, uh... It's this also is definitely real. that's real. It's also used for oh one of the God. anatomy professors to make his lecture recordings. So, a lot of uh, yeah, that's definitely part of a human face. But oh my God, <laughs> I've watched Bones enough to know like that's, that's yeah, that's, that's legit. Not a fake. That's a real face. <laughs> okay, well yep. we gotta do what we gotta do. Yeah, exactly. For you, <laughs> for the listeners. Yeah, we are devoted to y'all so what's new what's going on i know you just submitted a grant or are you about to submit a grant yeah i submitted i was in the trenches the past couple weeks Mm. so to be perfectly honest with you all because i feel like it's important to tell you how hard it is to sometimes be in this field this is my third try submitting Mm. and the first two were not good (laughs) they did not they were not accepted by the national institutes of health so I'm trying again, and it can be very discouraging sometimes to get so much rejection. Jamal and I have talked about that a lot lately. We have, and we actually rely on the same information that we use for the podcast mm-hmm. and those individuals for strength and our resilience and to keep pushing, to keep moving forward. Absolutely. Yeah, This doing this research and learning about these people has been such an inspiration personally. Yeah. Every time we are discouraged or rejected for something, it's the inspiration to keep going and try again. Yeah, it's it's a field that I think we promote in a way, right? We we think that it should be more inclusive and mm-hmm. more, we need more individuals involved in this field and to push work forward. 
but it's also something that's not glamorous. No. And so we think the last reason you should want to get a PhD is because you'll be uh, held in some high regard. Yeah. You know, you'll you'll be beat up so much and mm-hmm. be humbled so much during the process that I don't think that would be a good reason at all. Yeah, seriously. But if you really want to answer interesting questions, then this is one of the ways you can do it is mm-hmm. going through going to graduate school and maybe opening your lab or working for a company that you can answer those questions. Yeah. I mean, even though it's not glamorous, I love what I do. I just love being able to come up with an experiment, go through that whole technical process. But then when you get an exciting result, it's the best feeling in the world. Yeah. You're just like, I've discovered something, even if it's a very small thing that no one else has ever known before. Amazing. It's so cool. Yeah. And we still have so much more that we need to know mm-hmm. and understand, especially in neuroscience. Yes. Uh, we, we really don't know that much. It's so. the next frontier. I've heard neuroscience described as yeah. the next frontier in science. Yeah. And then within neuroscience, there's new frontiers mm-hmm. uh, that's that's evolving and not just focused on looking at the brain as, you know, an organ and what does this part do yeah. and what does, you know, this part do. It's we need. I think we said this before, we need all hands on deck from computer scientists to molecular Mm -hmm. biologists. We need everybody, right? Yeah. I mean, the research that we do, you and I, is pretty cross-disciplinary from like genetics to molecular biology to systems and behavior. It spans the gamut from like the very small to the very large interpretations of neuroscience. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. All right. So we should get into it this is a this is a different episode than we've done before we're Mm -hmm. not just covering one person we're covering a group of people and their contributions and in some ways how those contributions have been forgotten yes so good or erased or erased yeah Mm -hmm. actually doing research for this episode if i didn't google freedom house Mm -hmm. which for you guys listen this is who we'll be talking about today this uh paramedic group if I didn't Google that and I just Googled like early emergency medical service, early EMS um, services, like the timeline is the same, mm-hmm. but a lot of articles didn't include Freedom House. Really? They like skipped over it. Yeah. So wow. they talk about the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot even talk about the white paper mm-hmm. that we'll discuss later. And some mention Nancy Caroline. Caroline, yeah. Like briefly. Mm-hmm. But didn't mention Freedom House at all. So it's a difference. Yeah. So I wanted to see, because I was trying to look at not just Pittsburgh, which is Mm -hmm. the city we'll be talking about, but across the country. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I I left out Freedom House in my search. Mm -hmm. And you just, in in a lot of those articles, you just don't see them. That is. It's like skipped over. uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Super interesting. And it really was one of the first paramedic services. Yeah. But it was staffed almost entirely by African-Americans. Yes. And mostly from poor neighborhoods in Pittsburgh. Maybe people don't want to recognize that that's where EMS finds its roots. But I think it's badass. You know, we've heard firsthand reports of Mm -hmm. uh, these guys with afros Mm -hmm. and and goatees, like, showing up with uniforms and, you know, the ambulance. (laughs) And this was unprecedented, right? Mm -hmm. So um, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. So 
before 1967, which is when Freedom House Paramedics was founded, mm-hmm. what did it look like? What did emergency pre-hospital emergency like services look like? It's pretty astounding, actually. I had no idea that these emergency services didn't exist until the late 60s, mm-hmm. right? Like, it was virtually not there, pre-hospital emergency services. So, basically, if you had an emergency and you didn't have a car or a way to get to the hospital very quickly, if you called 911 or whatever it was at the time, I don't even know if they had 911. Mm, yeah, I don't know, but there was emergency dispatchers. I don't yeah. know what the what the number was. Though. Right. So if you called the dispatchers, they would send firefighters or police officers to your house, mm-hmm. but they didn't have any training in like medical. Exactly. Like, the one account said that they would just throw people in the back of what they called the paddy wagon, the, paddy wagon. the cop's car. Oh and God. like your, whether the person had a heart attack or they had some like accident, they're just sitting there bleeding or dying in the back of a cop car. And the cops are just taking their time getting to the hospital. Yeah. The, if you look up, just for you guys out there, Google 1960s paddy wagon, police mm-hmm. paddy wagon, and that's what people were being transported. Yeah. And on top of that, these cops were not responding to people equally based on the neighborhood. Like if you were in a rich neighborhood, they were there in an instant. Or you could also hire a private ambulance service. Those did exist yes. if you had the money. But if you were in a poor neighborhood, especially a predominantly black neighborhood, people said, they absolutely took their time. Yep. They were not quick to respond to these calls at all. Yeah. If they if they responded at all. Yeah, and if they yeah, if they responded at all, mm-hmm. so these individuals had to take things into their own hand. Yeah. It was very popular actually to have a hearse show up if you lived in the suburbs. Wow. So yeah, they had hearses as this sort of primitive version of an ambulance. That's so depressing. And uh, so some people some first hand accounts of the paramedics who actually worked for Freedom House said that these hearses still had like flower petals in them and that when they got a call, they would just try to scoop as much stuff out as possible (laughs) because uh, pre-hospital services, emergency services were trying to figure out the best way to transport a person. Mm -hmm. No one had even thought that, hey, we can provide care Mm -hmm. or service. It was just like, let's throw you in and let's drive you as fast as possible to the house. And actually the first version of this came right after the civil war so in about 1865 Hmm. there were these sort of ambulance services horse and carriage yeah Yeah, it was like it was was these uh, just emergency services where like the individuals transporting the injured came with like a bottle of whiskey and so if you think about a hundred years later in 1965 it really hadn't evolved that much Mm -hmm. nobody still thought that hey we should provide service or cpr which we'll talk about was Mm -hmm. kind of invented at this time um to these individuals wow so in the 1960s what started to change this culture so there was a what they call a white paper what and this is now just referred to as a white paper and it was called accidental death and disability the neglected disease of modern society And so the president at the time, LBJ, came across this white paper, and what he found was the report said it's more likely to be killed in an accident because of the lack of transportation and emergency care for individuals in a car accident 
than it is to be killed in the Vietnam War or some or the Korean War. So their emergency services for the military had evolved and was pretty good, but it wasn't like that in the city. And so the numbers around 1965 or 1966 were about 50,000 fatal accidents per year. And this number came from towards the beginning of early motor vehicles, about 29 per year. And so it was this linear trend. And actually, the services that we'll be talking about and what Freedom House innovated, if you like just Google like motor vehicle deaths in U.S. history, it's not that long. So you will see like this very low end, you know, like I said, 29 deaths per year to about 50,000 in 1965. And where we're at now is around like 30,000. And this is way more cars on the road, Mm -hmm. way more traffic. And we still have substantially less motor vehicle deaths. And it's it's based off the idea, again, from this white paper that if we have emergency services that provide care before individual gets to the hospital, we can save more lives. Hmm. And that's what happened. That's super interesting. Yeah. So this story is based primarily in Pittsburgh, which is very exciting to me because I did my undergrad in Pittsburgh, lived there for four years. And so I knew a lot of the places that they were referring to. And I actually have a really good friend um, who is a paramedic in Pittsburgh. Wow. She did her training there, and we went to undergrad together. So I asked her, I asked Tahel if she had heard about Freedom House, and she said they talked about it a little bit in her training at Pitt. Mm. But it's a really inspiring story. Even in Pittsburgh, they just talked about it. A little bit, yeah, just a little bit. So do you know about this um, Hill District? Yes, I do. Really? Yeah. So... Can you talk more about it? Because this is where Freedom House was born, right? Yeah. So, yeah, specifically the Hill District in Pittsburgh. It's actually, so where I went to school, Pitt, is in Oakland. So Pittsburgh has different um, neighborhoods, I guess. Okay. Kind of like we have here in Buffalo. We have different neighborhoods. But they're kind of more defined in Pittsburgh, I would say. Oh, okay. So, yeah, Pitt is in Oakland and also Carnegie Mellon. It's kind of the college area, and to the northwest of that, you have the Hill District. So we lived very close to the Hill District, actually. Mm -hmm. And this, even now, was an area where people were kind of like, oh, don't go to the Hill District. It's so dangerous, and you're just kind of told to avoid it. Yeah, people from Pittsburgh look down on it, like, honestly. Yeah, so I I heard so this this is, I think, maybe much later than the period we're we're talking about. But the Penguins played in an arena, I can't remember the name. PPG Arena. Maybe, but it was it was called something else even before mm. that. And I, apparently, it's close to this hill district. Mm-hmm. And they said that, well, at least reports that I read said that this strangled the community even more, um, so that it kind of blocked the community off from particular resources and funding and they said for like a 30-year period there weren't even any grocery stores in the neighborhood no it's it's a food desert like if you're just driving around it looks like it's been completely ignored by the city it Mm. just doesn't look like any resources have gone into making this a better place to live and in the 1960s when there was like the rise of the civil rights movement i'm sure that it was probably even more segregated or oh, more yeah. like, let's not go there. Let's not provide services. Absolutely. Like, do you know anything about that? Yeah. I mean, 
like most cities, Pittsburgh was segregated, even though it's a northern city, but we've talked before about the fact that northern U.S. cities are just as bad as southern in a lot of ways, but maybe more uh, subliminally. Yeah. Like, sneakily. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So segregation, while it's not necessarily codified, part of the law, it happens because of policies like um, redlining, right? Yeah. So I know that's true in Buffalo. I don't know so much about Pittsburgh, but I assume that all these Rust Belt cities are pretty similar. Yeah. Kind of forcing people of color into these areas where then the city does not put any resources into making it a better place. And so the cycle of poverty just continues to happen. And there's this narrative propagated that, oh, never go to this neighborhood. Like when I would live in Oakland, sometimes I would run around, go for a run, like run into the Hill District. I never felt unsafe, but you can definitely tell that it's an area that has been ignored Mm. by the city. Yeah, we have our own areas here Mm -hmm. similar to that um, with food deserts and Mm -hmm. That doesn't have a lot of resources and or grocery stores, mm-hmm. and they survive off of convenience stores with overpriced food. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, we need to get Dr. Taylor back on the podcast. He I specializes know. in this, but it seems like poor people always pay more for everything. Yes. Right? We have higher interest rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, people in our community have these rent centers and errands, which charge mm-hmm. you like uh, 30-something percent, like almost a legal percentage of APR on yeah. – um, furniture just so you can get it if you don't have credit uh, with no grocery stores you're paying more money mm-hmm. for like things like toilet paper and paper towels from convenience stores because you can't get to a Wegmans or something like that and even in like the grocery stores we do have they look much different even uh, one chain one local chain that we have looks much different in the inner city as than it does in the suburbs and you know about this right because you did some yeah thing in the community. In health in the neighborhood, yeah. Health in the neighborhood, yeah, for mm-hmm. a medical school. Yeah, so. But anyway, so this is the stage that has been set up to talk about why it was important for the Freedom House paramedics to get involved. Yes. Which started off as Freedom House Enterprises, which weren't involved with paramedic services at all, right? Yeah, so Freedom House Enterprises was in the Hill District, and it was located on Center Avenue, which most people who go to Pitt know of this street. I actually lived very close to Center Avenue. Mm. And this was an outgrowth of the United Negro Protest Committee formed in the 60s. So the person who ran Freedom House Enterprises was Jim McCoy. And this was a nonprofit that helped Black people find jobs, register to vote, helped organize NAACP meetings. Okay, so with that background of Freedom House and the work that they were trying to do in Hill District to help train people and hopefully bring them out of poverty, in 1967, a man named Philip Halen, former ambulance driver and the president of the Maurice Falk Medical Fund, which was a medical-focused charity, he had this idea that more high-quality emergency care should be brought to Pittsburgh, which, again, was a pretty new idea at the time. And he brought this up to another guy, Morton Coleman, who worked at Pitt's Graduate School of Social Work. And 
Morton Coleman was the one who suggested linking up with Freedom House to mm. work on training these underemployed African-American men and women, most prominently in the Hill District. Ah, okay. And at that time, another physician came on board, Dr. Peter Safar. So do you want to tell us more about him? Yeah, so that part I'm more familiar with because simultaneously this was happening, right, with uh, Freedom House. They were already kind of uh, getting things together on our own and trying to provide these services, at least in some way. And then there was a Austrian-Czech physician named Peter Safar from Pitt, right? Mm -hmm. He was an anesthesiologist, and he was trying to figure out ways to innovate emergency care and to do that well in a hospital because there still was there wasn't emergency care in a hospital either there weren't like emergency departments and also try to figure out how lay people can learn these techniques mm -hmm. and how they can be applied to save lives and so he thought it was a good idea to contact the freedom house enterprises and say hey like can i show you guys how to do some of these innovative techniques i've been coming up with and you can apply those in the streets. And one of those techniques was CPR. So Safar is actually the guy who came up with CPR, which stands for cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Yeah, hey, you're right. I got it. <laughs> you got an acronym. Woo! <laughs> I just had I, that's off the top. <laughs> that's off the dome right there. I just came he just up knew with it. it. Yeah, <laughs> came up Heart, with it. Lung. <laughs> resuscitate <laughs> so yeah so he was coming up with cpr and what's funny is he's also responsible for creating the cpr doll mm -hmm. that we have now which was called like it's called like rescue Ann, but yeah. it was called like so whatever resuscitate Ann or Re something yeah yeah people mm -hmm. eventually just called it rescue but it was like yeah. resuscitate Ann or something yeah yeah which has its own kind of weird story that they took really? like a, a death face or something it's oh, a death mask a death mask yeah, you heard of this? yeah. Mm -hmm. so they took a death mask of this unknown woman not not uh safar but um the toy makers who who created the product they took a death mask of this woman who nobody like some jane doe who died that has some mysterious death and they couldn't figure out who she was. And it was just like, we'd just take this face and no way. create this death mask. And that became the Rescue Ann doll. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I gave mouth to mouth to that doll. Yeah. <laughs> didn't we all? <laughs> I wonder how that's going to change with COVID. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I hope CPR. they're sanitizing it anyway, but. I don't know if they sanitize ours. They put a piece of tissue down Ew. you know like the yeah. emergency like tissue you can put on the lips yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like nobody carries that anyway right. so but they put that down. i don't think they cleaned mm -hmm. it come out training mm -hmm. but uh but anyway yeah so peter safar was innovating emergency care and he contacted freedom house and started training them on how to actually provide care in the field and this is sort of the line that had just began to be created between EMS worker and paramedic. I've seen you, you put something in the notes. Can yeah. You talk about what the difference is? Yeah, actually, a lot of people are EMTs, which is an emergency medical technician, mm -hmm. and then you have paramedics. Yeah, EMST as well. I mean, EMT is what I meant. Yeah, yeah. So paramedics have a much, much higher level of training than EMTs. So to become an EMT, you need 120 to 150 hours of training which is still pretty significant, but yeah. you can do it over 
a few weeks. For a paramedic, you need 1,200 to 1,800 hours of training, Mm. which is a huge amount of training. Yeah, exactly. So EMTs can deliver oxygen, glucose if someone's having a diabetic crisis, give CPR and first aid, but in other cases, they can't break the skin. They can't choose what medications to give someone. A paramedic, on the other hand, is qualified to deliver emergency medications based on their assessment of the patient's situation. They can also give IVs and intubate. So they're pretty well trained in these hands-on procedures and in um, patient assessment and physical exam. Yeah, and and actually, so it's pretty interesting. So you just put up um, your notes that you have on this. Mm -hmm. So even the first paramedic group, which we think is the the Freedom House group, mm-hmm. Peter Safar were training these guys for hundreds of hours. It yeah. wasn't quite the twelve to eighteen hundred hours, but it was around four hundred hours or so. Mm-hmm. And they were working in anatomy labs, and they did these tracheal intubation, and they also were given even Narcan at the time for heroin overdoses. They which, were, yeah, which kind of spiked at the time. Uh, I didn't know Narcan existed back then. I didn't know either. I mean, maybe it was under a different drug, but um, from the reports I've seen, they also were given Narcan. Wow. So they were trained by... um, And um, for people who don't know, uh, Narcan is basically the antidote to any sort of opiate overdose. It's an immediate acting resuscitatory drug. Yeah, and heroin was... uh, a very prominent drug of choice at this time. Mm. This was pre-crack cocaine era, right? Mm. And people were were using um, heroin to self-medicate. So, yeah, so Peter Safar were training these guys for hundreds of hours, and he was training them in pretty much everything that he knew that could be translated, he was doing. And the people that they trained were... Can you tell us about, like, these individuals from Freedom House? Yeah, so from what I read in my research, they would go around, they needed, like, 26 people to sign up to get this program started. And so they were just going around the Hill District, basically telling people, hey, we'll give you a free hot meal if you come in and learn more about this training and sign up. So they were just getting these people who were unemployed. Mm -hmm. They just wanted, like... They were so desperate, I guess, at that time that they were um, enticed to go through this really difficult training. But yeah, they had no prior experience in healthcare at all. So they were kind of showing that this was something, first of all, that could be instituted in a community to help that community using their own members, Yes, which is really important. We know that community emergency response, whether it's police officers, firefighters, or medics, it's important to have people who come from that community because you know much more about the culture and how to interact with people who you would be serving. Yeah, and and, and the desperation was for opportunity. Yes. Because these individuals were, first of all, unemployed Mm -hmm. because unemployment rate was very high in these communities. Remember, um, war on poverty, Mm -hmm. especially in these really um, cut off, segregated communities. Individuals were former felons, which Mm -hmm. we know um, have drastically reduced opportunity. And other individuals were former Vietnam vets. Mm -hmm. So they also didn't have very much opportunity. So they were desperate for opportunity and 
And this new innovative thing came along, and they were like, mm-hmm. I guess we'll learn how yeah. to be, like, street doctors. Mm-hmm. And um, do you know much about, like, the reception about, you know, they had to transport people to the hospital, mm-hmm. right? So how did doctors and nurses feel when these black guys with afros came up <laughs> in their ambulances? Uh, it seems like they weren't too happy about it, at least some of them. They were pretty nervous about getting these people who, especially in the 60s, I mean, I think now you would have a pushback of people in hospitals seeing this group of people being recruited for training. But in the 60s, I mean, institutional racism was even that much yeah. uh, worse. So there was a pretty worried response, I guess. But like even now, so to sidetrack a little bit, but I used to work in a free clinic in Pittsburgh that served people without any health insurance. And my job was basically to ask people if they needed any other support, paying their bills or finding a job, finding housing, anything like that, and try to link them with any sort of social services. And a lot of the people who were having trouble finding jobs were ex-convicts, ex-felons. And we have such a giant stigma against people who have been in jail. In prison. And people could have been in prison for having like an ounce of marijuana on them, right? Yes. For years. And especially if they're people of color. Yes. And that experience when you're 16, 17, going to prison for years afterwards, then you never get a job for the rest of your life. A respected job. Yeah. And for you guys who haven't read it yet, Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow. Um, goes into great depth about how the prison system can take away all your human rights and how the disproportionate number of members well, of prisoners are people of color. And as we can see, it's not because they commit more crimes, mm-hmm. but it's because of a system that was designed to show favoritism towards their white counterparts for committing the same crimes who had more money and resources and because of color of their skin. But that's another topic. Yeah, this is what what's going on at this time mm-hmm. and so yeah there were a lot of pushback i think i've heard accounts where some of the surviving members of freedom house said that they would go in and they would have their uniforms on and they'd be trying they would be trying to tell um a nurse or a doctor like hey i intubated this patient and this mm-hmm. is what's going on and the response at the beginning was more like so you're just running around thinking you're a doctor and you're a nobody like wow. kind of thing but people started eventually to realize that like, oh, we need these individuals to provide these services. Yeah. And especially after um, one of Peter Safar's residents that worked under him, Nancy Caroline, mm-hmm. came along. And, yeah, it seems she was a badass, right? Yeah. So you did, some, you did some research on her, right? Yeah, Nancy Caroline. Oh, man, she seems like such a cool person. She also, another thing, every time I read about her, I would read about Dr. Peter Safar and Nancy Caroline. Not Dr. Nancy Caroline, but she was a physician. She had an MD. It's just another thing where when we talk about women with doctoral degrees, you don't see that doctor or that MD or PhD, whatever, associated with their name. Yeah, actually, some reports that I've seen said that she was a student. Yeah. And some of the research that I did said 
But she wasn't. No, she wasn't. A student there. She yeah, wasn't she was a, a student. Resident. She earned her MD at Case Western, graduated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very and prestigious. Then, yeah, exactly. And then graduated and came to Pittsburgh. And she had her MD. She was a resident, so she was still training, mm-hmm. but she was a physician. Yes. So these reports are just not giving her the credit she deserves. Yeah. But so Nancy Caroline came to Pittsburgh, like we said. Dr. Safar was her mentor. And he was just starting this program in critical care. So among Dr. Safar's many uh, accomplishments, in addition to helping to start this first emergency service, he also pioneered the intensive care unit, the ICU, Mm -hmm. and the field of critical care or emergency medicine, which is now a field that physicians can go into today that didn't exist in the past. Mm -hmm. So he was pioneering this at Pittsburgh. And it's actually still a really big focus at Pittsburgh based on the really? actions of these people. Wow. Mm-hmm. So uh, Nancy Caroline was one of the first people who came to work with him as a resident, and she was assigned to oversee Freedom House. So Freedom House began, like we said, in 1967. It had been, it was 1974 at this point. So it had been around for about seven years. So... Dr. Caroline was very passionate about this project. She would work 24-7 with the team, riding along in the ambulances, Mm -hmm. sleeping on the gurneys so that she could learn more about their services, first of all, and then help to use her own medical training to make it more, uh, to make it better to provide the best care for their patients. She is specifically credited with expanding the advanced life support care that they provided. So things like CPR and I think IVs, intubation, Mm. things like that in the field, which, again, was very new at the time. Yeah. People weren't going out and doing tracheal intubation in people's homes or on the side of the road before this time. So apparently these Freedom House paramedics would go to the house and they had like some mantra like or some saying like you respect people's homes or something like that. Like mm-hmm. their bedside manner was great. Like they yeah. they would come in, they would be very calm and very respectful mm-hmm. in people's houses and their homes. And they would have to convince a lot of people, especially when they service um, white neighborhoods. That, hey, we're just here trying to help you and yeah. we have training for this. But that was something that they were known for, was just being very respectful yes. and very diligent. Yeah. And the fact that this was not at all common at the time, I mean, people would probably be pretty scared if these paramedics are coming at them with a needle yeah. and they're like, what are you doing? This is not something they've ever experienced. But yeah, it sounds like the Freedom House paramedics just had such a calm approach to explaining what they were doing, always asking permission, keeping a level head, but still being respectful in in, in an emergency, which is a pretty astounding skill, actually. Yeah. So so Nancy Caroline, when she started doing this, it's it says that she shocked her white family by riding along <laughs> with these, like you said, these black guys with afros and goatees going yeah. to like what was known as the most dangerous neighborhood in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And it was dangerous, like we alluded to this before, especially after Martin Luther King's assassination, there was a lot of rioting, there was just this lack of resources. I mean, um, there there was violence, and even when 
The paramedics first started going to the Hill District. It said that they had to leave the lights on in their uh, ambulances at night. Yeah. Because otherwise the people there thought they were police and yeah. started throwing rocks at them. So <laughs> So even then. Yeah, exactly. The relationship between, you know, these communities and mm-hmm. police weren't weren't great. And yeah. like you said, a lot of it had to do with um sort of neglect of police in those neighborhoods. Yes. But also um after the rioting and mm-hmm. things like that. It was really just this cultural response that mm-hmm. had already started coming up because of people like Stokely Carmichael and Malcolm X and suggesting that this turn in the other cheek and this kind of Gandhi approach that Martin Luther King um, spearheaded the United States just wasn't working. Mm-hmm. But after Martin Luther King, who, you know, was the pioneer of these peaceful protests in the United States, was killed, people were pissed off. They yeah. were like, you know what, it's we're done with all of this peacefulness. Like, right. we're going to, like, stand up. We're going to fight back. And the Black Panthers really kind of evolved at the time. So this is the, the backdrop of what was probably happening even in Pittsburgh mm-hmm. is that, you know, the tensions between police and black communities were probably at its highest. Yeah. Probably at its highest in history until now, yeah. right? So. And then, unfortunately, as we've seen echoed this year, when people are this rightfully pissed off and they take to the streets and some level of violence or or just property destruction, people get so up in arms about property destruction. Yeah. But people are rightfully angry that they can just be killed for no reason. But then it continues to propagate this narrative of dangerous communities and then the police come in and incite a violent response and then it just perpetuates mm-hmm. this cycle over and over so so i've been documenting this i don't mm-hmm. know if i told you yeah and what i've come up with is that in the suburbs what i see is a lot of black lives matter signs mm-hmm. and a lot of support but in the city is very few black lives matter signs because it's kind of you know no, Black Lives Matter. Those are our lives, right? Mm-hmm. But what you see is a lot of businesses during that time had boarded up and they were still open, but all the windows and doors completely boarded. Mm. And just that sense, that feeling of these businesses, some of them local, right? Mm-hmm. Black owned, but a lot of them not. A lot of mm-hmm. them owned by people from other races or other communities that set up businesses here mm-hmm. feeling like they have to protect themselves from the individuals who are trying to express their concerns about much bigger issues. Mm-hmm. And in which we know now, most of the rioting wasn't actually done by individuals that were protesting right. this particular cause. Hmm. That's really interesting. But Dr. Caroline's family weren't the only people who were shocked right yeah even the freedom mm-hmm. house paramedics was like hold on now yeah <laughs> you think we're gonna let this little white girl come yeah. and tell us what to do <laughs> but like you said she came and she did she went she was a true leader mm-hmm. everywhere she went they went everywhere they went she went yep. they like slept in the same living areas mm-hmm. like work 24 7 she taught them the skills at the anatomy labs at pitt and yep. um they they formed this great relationship yeah and um and it seems like part of that came from when she first came in she was learning from them first like she wanted to learn how do you do things 
what have you been taught? What's working for you? And then from there, once she developed an idea of how they were working and what they liked and didn't like, then she started to come in and, and use her expertise once they, once they had already built this mutual trust. Yeah. Yeah, you're right about that. And she and she put that in her textbook, which was released in the late 70s. And I think mm-hmm. current editions are still being written now. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember the name off the top. Do we have the name of it? Yeah. Emergency Care in the Streets. I yeah. I've been able to remember that. I think it's still, I think it's like in this eighth edition now or something like that. But she wrote this book and it was published in the late 70s. And she talked about not only her medical training and expertise, but also what she learned from Freedom House and how to to best approach emergency pre-hospital emergency situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So after being a part of this organization, Dr. Caroline, who was Jewish, her Jewish identity was very important to her. And she later ended up working in Israel's version of the Red Cross. Mm-hmm. She was the first physician to work in this Israeli Red Cross. And she created a program of emergency medical response to terrorist attacks And then later, she also worked in Kenya with Mm -hmm. the Flying Doctors Emergency Medical Service. Yeah. And she was working right up until her uh, untimely death in her 60s of multiple myeloma. But I have a picture here of her just riding a motorcycle, looking like a a boss. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) This was a woman who was devoted to her passion, which was emergency medical care for the people who were often being overlooked. And so this is kind of bringing us towards the end, because like you said, she came on like one or two years before Freedom House Mm -hmm. had ended up shutting down, right? Mm -hmm. And again, some reports say that Freedom House was failing and she came and revived it. That wasn't exactly the case. Um, again, they received resources and money from LBJ's um, response to the white paper, mm-hmm. but they didn't have a lot of resources since, right? And even their yeah. contract with the city, weren't, they, people weren't being paid on time. And we'll kind of talk about like the end and like how, like the demise of the Freedom House, which wasn't because they weren't doing a good job. Mm-hmm. But it was set up such that they um, were were kicked out and were eliminated and all of their innovation was taken. So Dr. Caroline's next job was working under, what's the uh, mayor's name who took over around that time? Flaherty? Yeah. Michael so Flaherty? the original mayor from 1962 to 1970 was Joe Barr. And he was a big supporter yes. of the Freedom House paramedics, actually. But then his successor, Pete Flaherty, I believe, was described as not hesitant to use racial slurs. So that tells you something about him. And he just hamstrung the program, made sure that funds were not available. Yeah, actually, yeah. So I should we should make that clear. Uh, Yeah. So Joe Barr supported also the uh, people supported these initiatives because the governor at that time had died of a heart attack and he this the transportation time and not being able to get assistance from his route mm-hmm. from his home or wherever he had a heart attack to the hospital was sort of alarming. And individuals in Pennsylvania were, you know, sort of supportive of new ideas to help provide care. Mm-hmm. So there was support until Mayor Flaherty came along. So they actually took Dr. Caroline from Freedom House and hired her for the city's oh. emergency services. 
So she went only with the agreement that all of the Freedom House members were to work for the city's uh, paramedic services. And I guess we can talk in a little bit about how that didn't pan out. Mm -hmm. But the demise of Freedom House was because they had enemies all over. They had enemies from the police who were saying that Freedom House was beating them to cause and they should be the ones out there for the cause, which we know didn't work beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. They had pushback from the suburbs who said, we need our own Freedom House. We don't want to rely on these group of black people to treat us and to service us. Like, we, we need our own things. And then Flaherty came in, and he was a Democrat, but he did not believe in taxpayer dollars being used for services for all. Mm. right he thought it was too like socialist socialist yeah to to have a system like that and so he wanted to cut all funding and all resources that was used by taxpayers dollars and they sort of cut off freedom house from all their resources like again they weren't paying them on time and they even had something absurd where he said people are complaining so we don't want you to use sirens yes so <laughs> So you just have to use your horn to get through traffic and it greatly reduced like their ability to navigate traffic mm -hmm. and, but the police can still use their sirens, right? Yeah. Do you know anything about, uh, uh, anything else about like what was created by Flaherty and this sort of direct initiative to shut down Freedom House? I just know that he wanted to create this new city emergency medical service system and transfer all the funding from Freedom House to this new city program that he was overseeing. So that's basically what I know about it. And it was intentional to shut down Freedom House. Yes. And even though they got Dr. Caroline on, they took everything Freedom House made. Mm -hmm. All the training, all the curriculum, hired her as the director, and then they agreed to take everyone on. So they hired all 26 people. And then they created stipulations that said, oh, if you're ex-con, cut, or... Mm -hmm. um, I don't oh, and they also created this new entrance exam that they purposely made to not encompass everything that the Freedom House people had been taught. So it seems like they were kind of under the table telling other people, especially white men from the suburbs, what was going to be on the exam. But this information was not available to the Freedom House paramedics. So even those who were not ex-convicts, which again, the stigma against ex-convicts is not justified in many cases. But in addition to that, they made this pretty much impossible to pass entrance exam for the Freedom House paramedics. Yeah. And it, the number was reduced from 26 to about 10 at first. Mm-hmm. And then they found a way to fire about five more, and they were left with five yeah. individuals originally from Freedom House, and only one of them in any type of supervisory role. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and these were eight-year veteran yeah. veterans of the service of the pioneering EMS. Yes, and they were looked over for being chief or assistant chief of different divisions in favor of these white people with no medic emergency medical training at all. Yeah. So basically the first paramedic services in this particular city were 100% black and within the same city 
within the same decade became 98% white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. And actually, my friend, she has complained a lot about how toxic the environment of emergency services in Pittsburgh is now. Mm. It tends to be pretty um, closed-minded white guys make up a lot of the people who serve in this uh, capacity. Wow. So that seems like a direct result of what was happening in the 70s with directly erasing its history, its roots in the black community, and just completely transferring that to the suburbs, the Mm. white suburbs. That was that. And not a lot of people heard about Freedom House until there was a documentary that came Mm -hmm. out in like 2009. Yeah. It was an indie film. And... We couldn't find it. No, we couldn't. I don't know, like, how to access it. Yeah, it was created by Gene Starzensky, who was a Polish-Japanese former paramedic who grew up in Pittsburgh during this time. Mm. And he was inspired by this story and decided to make a documentary about it. So we got a lot of information from their website, but we couldn't find the documentary anywhere. So if anyone knows how to access that. Yeah, let us know. Mm -hmm. And um, I would like to see it. Me too. So what I learned from doing this research is that I had never heard about Freedom House before Alex um, suggested it to us. Me neither. But the work that they did was incredible. And the way it was pioneered was amazing. Mm -hmm. But I also learned that paramedics are badass people. Yeah. Like the amount of training, like you said, 1,200 to 1,800 hours. And they can do things from IVs Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. intubation and give medicine and they sound like pretty incredible like people that you must have to be like a pretty level-headed calm but like clutch person to do this type of job I'm assuming Mm -hmm. yeah definitely and yeah they're the people who you trust in emergency situations like I said you show up to a scene you probably don't know much about what's going on versus maybe a short little thing from the dispatcher whatever they know And you show up, you immediately have to assess all of the people's safety, their, like, for example, if it's an accident involving multiple people, but even if it's just one, you have to do physical exam, figure out what's going on, make your best guess of a diagnosis, like, on the spot, Mm -hmm. um, support their airways if needed, like, maybe you have to do CPR, maybe you have to do intubation, you might have to start an IV, you might have to give some sort of medication. It's all of these different things that you have to be thinking about within minutes Mm. and then get them in the ambulance and transport them to the hospital as safely as possible. It's And how how much do paramedics get paid? Can we look that up? I don't know. I bet you it's not enough. I don't think so. It's it's a high stress job. Unfortunately, it has a lot of turnover. Mm -hmm. On Glassdoor, they make between twenty eight to fifty thousand per year. Mm, that's not very much. Salary.com, thirty four to fifty three. ZipRecruiter, yeah. thirty to 50. so these are pretty reputable. Pay scale, uh, fifteen to twenty six per hour. These are pretty uh, reputable sources. So an emergency physician makes around two hundred and fifty thousand to four hundred and sixty thousand per year from Salary.com, up to three hundred and eighty thousand on ZipRecruiter. Wow. And Glassdoor. Of about two hundred forty thousand on average, so probably like five to ten times as much. Yeah, it's it's those extra years of medical school worth ten times the salary for people who are doing a, yeah. you know, also a very important job. And you think about things like stroke, right? Mm-hmm. 
if we didn't have paramedics, how many lives would be lost yeah. from individuals who have a stroke? And to be able to get those individuals quickly and mm-hmm. assess them before they get to the hospital. Yeah. So physicians can know like what's what's happening, what's going on, what form of treatment mm-hmm. to start. So um, that's what I learned from doing the research. So I really appreciate this suggestion for this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. And yeah, so the legacy of Freedom House needs to be more well known, but it did influence how the rest of the nation developed their emergency medical services. So even though other cities like Miami and Seattle were also pioneering EMS around the same time, Pittsburgh and Freedom House were set apart by their use of advanced life service treatment in the streets. And that's credited to Dr. Safar, Dr. Caroline, and all of the people who agreed to be the first Freedom House paramedics and learn these advanced techniques, which is pretty brave. Yeah. And also, the legacy continues in, like I said, Pittsburgh is a leader in critical care, and they also have one of the only bachelor's programs in emergency medicine in the entire country, which my friend got her degree in. Wow. And so they learned some pretty cool stuff like medical emergencies, cardiology, patient assessment, pharmacology, critical care, legal and professional issues, and then they also have internship experiences in healthcare. So a cool bachelor's to get if you're considering that. Yeah. So the last quote that I found to end on was from George McCrary, who was one of the first EMTs in, in Freedom House. So he did not end up continuing with the service for many of the reasons we described, that the people were pretty pushed out, mm-hmm. and he ended up driving a cab instead. But he loves to tell his passengers the story of Freedom House, and he says, you can't say you can meet the first doctor, and you can't say you can meet the first police officer, but you can say you met one of the first American worldwide EMT paramedics. So that's the legacy they have today. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Freedom House Paramedics. So with that, remember that after next episode, which would be episode seven, we're going to take a six-week break, revamp the podcast, Mm -hmm. and reorganize the material and get out some interviews that we recorded and just make it a better quality entertainment source for you guys. So during this time, we really hope that, like Alex, you can give us suggestions. Please, uh, let yes. us know at reclaimthebench.com. Send episode suggestions, what you want to hear, what you mm-hmm. want us to cover, ideas for season topics that we can cover, because we're going to be working hard in that month and a half, figuring out the best way to give you guys this material. And as always, if you would like to donate uh, as we try to make this even higher quality, you can do so also on Reclaim the Bench. We have a PayPal right now, and we're also going to be setting up our Patreon account for extended content during this time. Yeah, we have one more. We have another shout out to make for a donation, which must have been your brother or something. You have a brother named Brian? That's my dad. That's your dad? Yeah. So somebody named Brian 
Conroe. <laughs> Did you forget uh, my name? <laughs> I forgot if it's Graham or Conroe. Oh. <laughs> I forgot which one was yours. Donated nice, like 75 bucks. It was pretty good. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. You didn't know that? Thank you, parents. Yeah. No, I didn't. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. She was probably involved, too. So Yeah. Aw, I appreciate that. <laughs> so, also, like and subscribe to Reclaim the Bench, wherever you listen to podcasts. This really is our um, best form of support. We mm-hmm. really want to keep going because we know that people are listening and we really love our base be- right now because you guys are loyal. You guys give us feedback. Shout mm-hmm. out on social media. Tune in. We can tell who you are by looking at the metrics. We don't know exactly, but yeah. we can tell by the numbers. Like, it's it, um, who our base is. And we want to continue to grow that organically. And so, again, just letting us know if we're doing a good job and spreading mm-hmm. the word about the podcast is the best form of support that you can do. Yes. So with that, we'll see you in a couple weeks. And also, don't forget to subscribe to Reclaim the Bench on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave a review. This is one of the best ways to support our mission of amplifying the voices of those silenced in scientific and medical discovery. For even more content, including exclusive interviews or a chance to chat with us live, become a Reclaim the Bench patron at Patreon. Follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at Reclaim the Bench. Also, stop by ReclaimTheBench.com to see what's on the agenda and to leave comments or suggestions on what topics you'd like to see us cover next. And if you'd like to further support our podcast, you can donate through our website. Funds will help us to maintain the infrastructure necessary to continue delivering you content. 